This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Welcome to this episode of the East Trauma Cast. Uh, my name is Dave Morris, and I'm uh, really excited for our topic today, which is whole blood transfusion and trauma resuscitation. Uh, with me today uh, to discuss this topic, we have uh, two leaders in this field. Uh, first is uh, Dr. Phil Spinella. Uh, Phil, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yes, hi. Um, Phil Spinella. I'm a pediatric intensivist at Washington University in St. Louis and uh, was 12 years active duty, uh, spent one year in Baghdad, 0405, where I got very involved in the whole blood transfusion program there. Um, as part of that um, experience, I was awarded the Bronze Star, and uh, in 2008, the U.S. Army's uh, Best Invention Award for being a part of the team that developed uh, damage control resuscitation as a concept. Wow, fantastic. Well, welcome, Dr. Spinell. appreciate your time. Uh, also joining us is Dr. Alan Murdoch. Uh, Alan, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself as well? Sure. Uh, Alan Murdoch. I'm a trauma surgeon. Uh, my current status is um, I'm the chief of emergency surgery at the Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh uh, with an adjunct uh, appointment at the University of Pittsburgh um, for uh, research purposes. Spent uh, 15 years active duty in the Air Force with the uh, uh, chief consultant for surgery and the trauma consultant. Uh, to the Surgeon General, and also uh, did tours as the Chief of Trauma at uh, Balad in Iraq and uh, Bagram in Afghanistan. Great. And if uh, any of our listeners have been uh, following the literature at all, you'll know that both of these uh, guests today have published extensively and are indeed uh, world experts in this. So I uh, feel very lucky to have you both here today. Thank you. Um, also joining us is uh, Dr. Matt Martin, uh, one of my co-moderators, and Dr. Andy Bernard. Uh, Matt and Andy. How are you guys doing? Oh, great. Thanks for the invitation, David. Uh, yep, great. Great to be here and looking forward to uh, hearing this topic. Great. Well, uh, why don't we go ahead and just dive right in. Uh, my first question is uh, maybe for you, uh, uh, Phil, to start off with, and then we'll get to Alan thoughts as well. But uh, why don't you tell us what are the benefits of whole blood transfusion in comparison to uh, fractionated component transfusion as, as is currently practiced, I think, in most major hospitals right now? Sure. I think um, a major benefit of a unit of whole blood compared to uh, a reconstituted unit of whole blood with one-to-one-to-one of platelet plasma and red cells is it's a more concentrated uh, product. Uh, If you look at the literature, some of what we've written, there is basically uh, three times as much anticoagulants and additive solution in reconstituted whole blood compared to whole blood. So um, in a standard resuscitation from patients from uh, Iraq, patients that received one-to-one-to-one compared to whole blood received 800 ml more of uh, citrate anticoagulant solution compared to those that received whole blood as part of that resuscitation. Uh, So it's more concentrated and then clearly less anticoagulant within the blood product. So that, to me, is a major uh, advantage. Second uh, advantage, I think, is logistically 
It's much simpler to give one blood product compared to three. And that's important in hospital, but extremely important pre-hospital. And I think as we've all started to learn and now we know very well, uh, if we're going to make an impact with uh, outcomes in trauma care, with traumatic hemorrhage, it's in the pre-hospital space. And giving whole blood pre-hospital is uh, much simpler than trying to give platelets, plasma, and red cells in the pre-hospital space. So more concentrated product, less uh, anticoagulants involved, and logistically much simpler. Oh, and by the way, it's FDA approved. It's FDA approved. Um, many people feel or don't understand that. So that's not a barrier to using whole blood. Uh, Alan, any other thoughts about this? Any other benefits that you see? Yeah, you know, I, I certainly echo uh, Phil's comment about the simplicity of it. You know, if you haven't been into the trauma data and the OR trying to look at people dumping a bunch of products into a patient, particularly when they are either pre-hospital or in the trauma bay, you know, now at, at University of Pittsburgh and at Allegheny General, we basically have four units of whole blood immediately available. And so instead of hanging, you know, up to 12 different products, hanging four products. Um, either on our way to the OR or the ICU or other intervention. I think the other interesting part and, and the part that uh, really needs to be further explored is, is uh, potentially um, the advantage of cold stored whole blood is the uh, cold platelet function. Um, and there is data out there that certainly suggests uh, that uh, cold platelets that are already activated and certainly in the standpoint of hemorrhage uh, those activated platelets may be much more efficient at stopping bleeding than the typical, um, you know, ring-stored uh, platelets uh, that are currently available as part of the one-to-one-to-one. -one -one. Uh, yes, that's a great point. And actually, there are two randomized controlled trials, one in, in adults and one in children, showing that a cold-stored platelet product, whether it be whole blood or a freezing platelets, uh, had clinically less bleeding and were associated with improved platelet function when the platelets were stored cold. So you're right. That is a major advantage of, of cold whole blood. And, and Phil, are you, are you talking about the cardiac surgery trials? Those aren't trauma trials, correct? No, so you're right. Neither, I didn't, neither of them are trauma trials. You're right. I didn't, although I don't think I said trauma trials. One was a pediatric cardiac surgery uh, RCT, and one was an RCT in adults that were either thrombocytopenic or on aspirin. And, and do we have anything in the trauma literature yet similar to well, that data? Um, yes and no. So uh, Brian Cotton published a paper with uh, part of Holcomb's group, I guess about a year or two ago, where it was um, a, basically a pilot RCT comparing uh, components to uh, cold whole blood, but since they were uh, had to leukocyte reduce it with a filter that did not spare platelets, they had to add warm aphorese platelets to the cold whole blood. Uh, so that was one study arm compared to one to one to one. So, uh, yes, there is a, a trial in trauma patients, but it's really not comparing cold whole blood to components. It was cold whole blood plus warm platelets to components. And while the primary outcome in that trial was the, the number of blood products transfused, there was no difference between the two groups except for when they removed patients with traumatic brain injury. Then there were less patients that received blood products in the cold, whole blood plus platelet group. But, again, and I understand why the group was forced to study it in the way that they did. They 
from what I understand, didn't want to study it that way. Uh, but it makes it extremely hard to generalize that data because no one wants to give cold, whole blood plus one playlist. It kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah, I think the other thing, too, to point out about the cotton study was that the whole blood used in that study was type-specific. Um, uh, so those patients that ended up receiving whole blood actually had to be typed uh, and screened at least uh, initially to get any product. Um, and I think Phil and I would certainly suggest as part of a kind of emergency uh, transfusion or massive transfusion that initially those products be unmatched and that way they're immediately available, which means that they have to have low titers, anti-B and anti-A, uh, so that you don't get any hemolytic uh, reaction. Right. So what Al means is uh, using group O whole blood as the universal donor and to make it safer, uh, having B low titer uh, for anti-A and anti-B. Uh, that was the experience of, of the military up until, uh, including Vietnam, uh, the literature from those conflicts showed it was a very safe uh, uh, product, but with the institution of component therapy and the move away from whole blood, uh, AABB standards require whole blood to be ABO specific. Uh, but there's actually a movement now within ABB to change those standards, and I can pretty much I can come close to promising you that within the year that that standard will, will change. ABB has been uh, engaging with the trauma community heavily in the past uh, six months, and I uh, expect uh, that standard to change where they're going to, where they will allow Group O whole blood to be part of the standards uh, that they uh, support. And just now, with, uh, sorry, sorry, just by way of clarification for our uh, listeners, the AABB is the American Association of Blood Banks. Um, and uh, just just to make sure we're all on the same page with that. So, yeah, go ahead, uh, and Alan, and so I, I was intrigued by the statement in your, your transfusion 2016 manuscript that the likelihood of major transfusion reaction is actually greater with type-specific yes, transfusions of whole blood than O because our, our likelihood of a, of a wrong blood in tube or some other transfusion mismatch error is greater than a major hemolytic transfusion reaction with giving O to a patient who happened to be A or B or AB. I thought that was very interesting. Yes, yeah, that was um, very interesting data that we that we came across in the UK shot uh, hemovigilance database. Um, and, it, I mean, it makes sense. Using type O whole blood, the only risk is that plasma would be incompatible, not the red cells. And we give uh, incompatible plasma every day when we transfuse platelets. The amount of plasma in a platelet unit is almost the same as the amount of plasma in a whole blood unit. And um, patients get non-matched platelets all the time, and it's not a problem. So it's interesting how standards have developed over time, and no one can really answer why it occurred that platelets were allowed to be given um, without being uh, matched, whereas whole blood, you know, needed to be. Quick question um, for both of you. It seems to me that another potential benefit, as you hit on, is the immunologic and infectious disease issues of, uh, you know, pooled donors and, and all those types of things. If you're getting a balanced ratio resuscitation, you're being exposed to a much higher number of donors than you are with a single unit of whole blood. Has anybody quantified that or looked into that yes. in a more objective way? And could you talk about that for a bit? 
so once again, pediatricians leading the way. Uh, <laughs> say that as, a, as a joke, kind of. Um, in Philadelphia, where I trained, uh, they published a paper maybe two years ago um, uh, documenting the reduced donor exposure over Philadelphia's you know, 15, 20-year history of using um, cold whole blood for cardiac uh, surgery. I don't have the numbers in my head exactly, but, yes, they've documented the reduction in donor exposure with a whole blood program compared to um, components. Now, we don't know if it's clinically uh, relevant or if there's clinical outcomes are improved as a result of reduced donor exposure, uh, but uh, there is reduced donor exposure, obviously, with the with whole blood compared to components. And then, now, Alan, uh, uh, with the type-specific versus O issue, you mentioned that you guys keep four units of whole blood. So are you giving type-specific, or are those four units of O, or are those four units of O low titer? Right. There are there are four units of um, low titer O um, blood, um, and, and there's debate about exactly what uh, the titer cutoff should be. Um, we basically, I think, have a pretty restrictive cutoff. Ours is um, less than um, 100. It's a 50 uh, titer cutoff. And basically the reason that is is because that's the titer that uh, the Institute of Transfusion Medicine, which provides all the blood in the city of Pittsburgh, had used uh, for their A uh, plasma. So A plasma was given since the shortage of AB plasma for patients as a universal donor. And so that's the cutoff that we use. Um, and so that's what is meant by low titer. But if you talk to the guys at the Mayo Clinic and Don Jenkins, um, they, their titer is uh, somewhere around uh, 1 to 200 or less than, slightly less than 1 to 200. And that's probably similar to the titer that was used through Vietnam. It's kind of hard when you look back at the historical documents, what is meant by low titer that was used through Vietnam. But it's somewhere around 200 to 250. And, and their rate of uh, hemolytic uh, reaction was extremely low. So we figure we're on the very uh, conservative side. Uh, the main issue with that is obviously uh, the lower your titer is, your cutoff, the more the less likely you'll have any reactions, but also means that your donor pool uh, will be uh, smaller also. But so far, we've only found, you know, if we look at our donor pool for O negative low titer, that cutoff, uh, we're only missing about uh, 13% of the donor pool miss that in Pittsburgh. Um, now, that may be different in different cities, but right now, uh, we have a good supply of people to provide low titer, and, and it's not a machine. Right. And uh, let me add to what Alan said about the program in Pittsburgh. Uh, they started with, uh, you know, two to four units being available. The plan is to expand or increase the number of units um, available over time as they just show increased um, or as they document uh, safety. So, uh, I would ex I would suspect you know most large trauma centers would eventually want the stock at one time I think anywhere between 15 to 20 units of uh, low titer group O whole blood um, that could then be restocked the next time uh, or after a patient was resuscitated from a local blood uh, center. Um, you're clearly not going to be able to stock you know 40, 60 units um, at once. Because if they do expire, uh, you will wind up losing the, the entire product and the red cells and plasma platelets that could have been used. So 
my estimation, I think 20 would be a decent number for most large trauma centers to shoot for. Sure. So, so Alan, how are you getting around the, you know, the AABB statement we just heard about that whole blood should only be type specific? Is it because it's part of a prospective trial, or are you just ignoring that that guideline? <laughs> well, you know, right now actually it's not part of a trial. Uh, our approach, you know, obviously if you do a prospective trial because it's used in an emergency situation, you have to go through waiver of consent, and um, we thought that we had enough data. Uh, based on military experience and the fact that obviously, you know, most trauma centers move to a one-to-one-to-one ratio without any prospective trial uh, based on military experience that we could go ahead and do a change of practice. And so what we did was we actually just went to our transfusion committee and presented the data, uh, laid out exactly how we were going to do this, starting off with two units and that we were going to Get two units. We figured there was a very low risk of hemolytic uh, reaction. And again, our cutoff for titer was really low. We were already giving A plasma, so we were already exposing patients uh, to possible hemolytic reactions, and no one seemed to have a concern about that. And uh, we followed, you know, the first uh, 50 patients or so and uh, looked at haptoglobin, which is, you know, there's no great marker uh, for hemolytic reactions other than haptoglobin. And really, if you have a true hemolytic reaction, your haptoglobin should go to zero. Uh, and that documentation is actually pretty old. You have to go all the way back to the 1960s and the JAMA article to actually find uh, the article that, that really discussed, um, you know, he, uh, hemolytic reaction and, and haptoglobin. And so we measured it, and, and in the patients that we measured, um, the patients never had um, haptoglobin that low. They did drop some of their haptoglobin with transfusions, but it turns out you know, even if you get type-specific, once you get above uh, 1,000 cc's of type-specific uh, blood, you start seeing hemolytic reaction. Uh, you seem to, he- seem to have a hemoglobin drop. So it is a function of blood transfusions overall. So, you know, once we got through that first two units, we went back and we said, hey, we're going to do four units. That's uh, almost two liters of resuscitation because each bag is somewhere between 450, 450 to 500 cc's of, of blood. And so we figured if you're going to get any kind of reaction, if you get two liters of blood, then we would probably see something. And so we're monitoring those patients now, and, you know, once we get that data, we'll go back again, and we'll probably go up to eight and uh, units uh, per patient, at least as a change of practice, um, although we are interested in doing a multi-center trial uh, to, you know, truly validate the process. So the ADB does um, know that Pittsburgh is, is – um using group O whole blood uh and you know you could deviate from standards if you want. Uh they haven't attempted to sanction Pittsburgh in any way. And that might be because the Mayo Clinic around the same time they did request a variance and they they granted it to the Mayo to the Mayo Clinic. Um so the A B B has already recognized that it's uh well they've they've granted a variance once. Uh, they know Pittsburgh is doing it, and actually there's a few other centers around the country now that are about to start. Uh been told in Houston they're about to start a whole blood uh, program in Kentucky. They're also using whole blood pre-hospital. Um, and in San Antonio, the Army, the US, and the ISR is about to start a uh, Group O whole blood program as well, uh, too. So... The ABB is aware, and as I mentioned up front, uh, they 
they're in the process of seeing how the standards can be changed. I know that because I'm on the committee. I was going to ask, uh, blood bankers and clinical lab people in general don't exactly have a reputation for being rule breakers. What's what's the reasonable likelihood that a trauma surgeon out there could take this on with their transfusion committee and 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 work toward this? And, and and my second part of that question is is giving type A plasma to a patient of unknown blood type, which sounds like is a quite a prevalent practice without a lot of evidence base, is that a violation of AABB guidelines or or is that okay? Let me answer the first question. I'll let Al answer the second harder one. Um, when the A when the AABB changes their standards, which I which I I'm I'm almost positive they will in the next year, it will make it much easier for you know the typical trauma surgeon to approach his transfusion medicine director and say, hey, you know now the ABB has changed their standards. Can can we now use Group O uh, whole blood? Um, until then, it's going to take the you know the very uh, progressive uh, transfusion medicine director. You know, um, Daryl Truesley and Mark Yazer in Pittsburgh are are, pro, uh, are progressive. Jim Stobbs up in Mayo is, again, progressive. So um, it's going to take changing the ABB standards for the general – for the typical center to be able to, to change practice. You're right. Otherwise, it's a conservative group, and it will be difficult to, to change. Um, I don't know if Group A plasma – uh, as a universal donor meets ABB standards, but um, it's extremely prevalent, as you mentioned. Al, do you yeah, know? I'm under, yeah, I'm unaware of that there is any AABB um, regulation on A plasma, to be quite honest. And I don't think that there is because, um, you know, if there was, there would have been, I think, a waiver, same kind of waiver process that would have gone. It is highly prevalent in almost all trauma centers. Not all. I mean, I can't, I don't know the exact quantity, but, you know, a lot of trauma centers, level one trauma centers, their, their supply of AB is just so low, uh, compared to all the other, you know, A, that they just use it pretty routinely. Um, so I, I don't believe there is, but unfortunately, you know, I don't have Mark Azer or Daryl Teruzzi to tell us <laughs> for sure. Um, let me ask the next question. Um, we talked a little bit about some logistics and uh, things like that, but in terms of maybe let's start with uh, what's the current state of whole blood transfusion in the military? Is it routine? Is it happening every time? Does every, uh, say, deployed medical unit have the capacity for it, or, or how widespread is it uh, as it becomes? So, so, Al, I called Andre half hour ago to get the most up-to-date info. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll take no, it first. Go ahead. Go ahead, Phil. So in the in-hospital setting, over 10,000 units of whole blood have been transfused since 2003. Um, pre-hospital, though, is where it's, it's just starting to occur now. And the, for pre-hospital use in the military, uh, the special forces uh, units now have availability to low titer group O whole blood, and they have transfused it. Uh, multiple times uh, successfully in the past uh, year. Um, there is a plan to uh, start to put it on helicopters in CENTCOM uh, 2. That will happen in the next uh, month or so or very soon. Um, so pre-hospital use has just started uh, in helicopters and for special forces units uh, only um, on the ground. 
And in hospital, as you know, it's been very prevalent, over 10,000 units. And at home, as I mentioned before, the ISR is about to start using whole blood um, at the trauma center there at uh, SAMHSA. Just for clarification, I think, uh, you know, when we're talking about whole blood, particularly from traumatic um, emergency use, again, I think it's probably good to delineate the difference between uh, universal donor, which would be the low titer uh, O blood versus whole blood that's given as uh, fresh whole blood or, or other products. So, Phil, you may want to clarify the 10,000 units that were given in hospital. Is that uh, type specific or, or uncrossed? So, so, thank you, uh, Al, for bringing that up. The, lar- the vast majority were ABO specific, but many of the um, level two of the, uh, the fast um, centers did use uh, Group O whole blood um, against military guidance, but they were stuck and they did it anyway. Uh, that Sean Nesson's paper uh, on whole blood that I'm the senior on um, documented uh, that, and there was no reduction or there were similar outcomes with Group O whole blood compared to ABO specific. But Al, to your point of the 10,000 in hospital, the vast majority were ABO specific. And is that and now fresh, the, warm, or is that stored? Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was, well, um, 10,000 were, were warm. Uh, pre-hospital now, it's cold. Okay. Right. So there's a lot of uh, specifics that need to be recognized when it comes to whole blood. And a quick question about uh, a logistic question: Are are the uh, either the fresh, maybe the fresh warm units? Are they subjected to any of the rapid tests or rapid screening tests for HIV or some of the other infectious diseases? I know there are several rapid tests, point of care tests available right. for the standard battery of tests that the uh, say the Red Cross would put a unit through. But is that happening in the military setting, or, is, or talk a little bit about logistically how that process happens? Sure. Um, sorry, I'll, I'll take this one, too. Um, in the beginning of the war, it was warm whole blood was not uh, tested for TTDs, transfusion-transmitted diseases. But in 04 in Baghdad, we started doing it with uh, rapid tests for HIV, Hep B, Hep C. Um, it became a standard at most of the level threes. But if you're at a level two, um, even late in the war, many of them did not have the capability so it was spotty. At some large centers, they did test for TTDs prior to giving whole blood. At some places, uh, they didn't have the uh, capability uh, to do so, uh, especially in the uncommon circumstances when whole blood was collected out of the, at a level one and transfused. Yeah, and, and this is Matt, and, l- and let me add to that, uh, David. So, so one, you also have to consider, you know, the risk from your source pool. And, and having been at a level two where we had to set up a whole blood program, uh, you know, we only used U.S. soldiers who obviously are universally screened for HIV, HIV every year, Hep B and C. So you're starting with a low risk pool. And then we would have a pre-screened group who were on the base who would get testing and then would be on a list and they'd be the ones to call in to donate whole blood. And then we would do the rapid test when they donated the unit. Now, and maybe Alan and, and Phil, you can comment on this. Of course, that that was uh, that was great for the U.S., but we also took care of some allied forces. And I know, you know, some of that ended up in the newspapers as, you know, the U.S. medical forces are using this non-approved 
you know, whole blood and exposing these people to infectious disease. I think the British press had a couple articles like that when we gave some British troops fresh whole blood. Uh, I don't know if you have any comments on that, Phil or Alan, or if you remember that whole thing. I do, but I've been talking too much. Al should talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, we didn't make any difference about who got it if there was somebody who needed mass transfusion. I mean, fortunately, um, I, I was at a, at a role three, uh, both, uh, deployments, and so component therapy was widely available, but, uh, we certainly had, had done other, uh, warm cold blood drives, uh, when, when the product, uh, ran out. And certainly we saw numerous, um, patients being transferred from FSTs to get fresh warm blood. So, you know, there may have been some discussion about it, but I think, you know, if you offer it across the board, whether it's to um, U.S. troops or coalition troops or even, you know, um, civilians, I think if it's part of a routine practice, um, I'm not sure that anybody can really say that uh, you're practicing unethically, at least in a differential way. I guess they can always make an argument that, that what we were offering uh, may not be uh, FDA approved, but certainly we didn't make any difference about who we gave it to, at least from my perspective. Uh, and and uh, I've seen the same thing uh, from the other services. Right. Well, to add on to that and to get to the whole British issue, yeah, kind of midway through the war, the Brits did make a, a think about the use of whole blood in the London Times article. It kind of did reverberate uh, a lot and led to reduction of whole blood use in theater around that time. Uh, but interestingly, uh, in the past few years, uh, the Brits themselves are now using Group O whole blood uh, for their casualties uh, when necessary. And it's not just the Brits. The French have a whole blood uh, capacity that the Norwegians uh, do as well, and I think also the Australians. So um, the community has come around and has all... Um, have started to adopt whole blood use uh, in theater. Uh, but the use of warm whole blood, again, it's a whole separate animal, really only appropriate for military settings when uh, you can't use uh, fully tested cold whole blood. But, I mean, clearly in the civilian world, we need to focus on uh, making cold whole blood more available. Um, and what's advantageous about that is that recent uh, military data and that's in vitro is showing that cold whole blood can probably be stored for 14 to 21 days uh, and then uh, used with similar or superior hemostatic function to warm platelets uh, out to five days. So we're basically tripling or quadrupling the, uh, the storage time for a platelet-containing uh, product, uh, in this case whole blood. Um, and it's probably, it may be superior to warm platelets, and even if it's not superior, if it's even if it's equivalent in function, logistically for pre-hospital use, it's a it's a dramatic uh, improvement uh, to be able to give a patient who's hemorrhaging platelets, plasma, and red cells. Uh, no helicopter service is going to be interested in bringing three products uh, pre-hospital, and we know uh, from military data and even civilian data that the majority of preventable deaths from hemorrhage occur in the pre-hospital space. The National Academy of Sciences report that just came out um, documented that there are 30,000 preventable deaths per year uh, from traumatic injury uh, in the U.S. 
30,000 a year preventable. And while the civilian data was difficult to determine how much of them would be hemorrhage, even if you took a low estimate of 66% of preventable deaths were from hemorrhage uh, compared to the 90% that Eastridge uh, published, I mean, that is basically 20,000 people a year that are dying unnecessarily from hemorrhage in the pre-hospitals uh, and, and mostly in the pre-hospital space. That's a tremendous number that we can likely impact greatly with getting whole blood in helicopters and ambulances. Uh, so we have to continue to push this and uh, make it more available. I know one of the questions was going to be, what are the limitations of making whole blood available? And it's basically threefold. One is the recognition that a cold-plated product is superior hemostatically. I think there's been some decent clinical trial evidence and some great in vitro evidence that's supporting that. Um, that's, that really is no longer a barrier. There's the ABO-specific barrier. You can see that that is already coming down, and we can use group O, whole blood, now. The third barrier, which is now becoming even controversial again, is the do we need to leukocyte reduce whole blood when we're giving it to hemorrhaging patients? Um, 85, 90% of the blood products that we transfuse in the U.S. are leukocyte reduced, uh, and it's standard in Canada and uh, Europe. To leukocyte reduce whole blood, it's been classically complicated because the filter that takes out white cells also takes out platelets. One company does make a platelet-sparing filter, that has been used in Philadelphia at the Children's Hospital uh, and um, other centers. But now there's some concern about the, the quality of the playlists that are filtered. Uh, so now our research network is questioning, do we really need to look at that reduce whole blood? Uh, you'd rather keep functional playlists in the whole blood and maybe expose the patients to the white cells uh, versus leukocyte reducing and taking the platelets out. So now there's been a, a back and forth regarding the need to leukocyte reduce. But in the past, that has been a barrier. Um, and I think, or well, I know the ADB will be tackling this as well, too. And hopefully, they'll agree it's not necessary to leukocyte reduce whole blood, and that will give people the option of not filtering it. Uh, but those have been the main barriers in the past. Again, it's FDA approved. All the main barrier has been blood sensors will not make, will not sell it to the hospital. The Red Cross told me two years ago when I asked for whole blood in St. Louis, they said it was not in their business plan to provide whole blood. They would lose money, is what they said. Verbatim. Right that's from that's one of the, that's one of the questions I, I have because I know, um, and this is maybe, sort of under the surface that maybe the general public isn't aware of, but there are significant financial uh, considerations when it comes to fractionating. And um, you think that'll be the main barrier to widespread implementation is the, is the, the financial things, or, or is it going to be more just uh, the data will eventually prevail? So, you know, I, I think currently the Institute of uh, Transfusion Medicine in Pittsburgh what they have done, they didn't really know what to charge the institutions for, for a bag of whole blood. So they ended up just adding up the cost of what a packed red blood cell platelet and FFP would be in the process and then what it cost to titer it. Um, and they ended up charging about $600 a unit. 
So, you know, other than titering uh, that blood, the, the fractionation and stuff, I mean, you don't have to do any of that with full blood. So really, from a standpoint of financially, uh, the only thing that I, I could think that would happen would be if you start using less blood because you're using whole blood products and you find out that your treatment of the coagulopathy and resuscitation is improved and so you, you start using less product. Um, and I'm not sure that's going to happen, but it certainly might. You know, again, look at cotton you know, as their secondary outcome. They found out using type-specific whole blood that they used uh, less blood overall, and I suspect that we may find that out also once we get up to more units of whole blood. So there, there may be there may be that issue, but I, I think it's more of just a kind of culture, uh, more so than anything else. Uh, and the blood banks themselves, just that's not a product they've done. They've always fractionated at least for the last 50 years, and that's the way it is. And that certainly became an issue with the push to try to get cold platelets, which are now FDA approved for three days. You know, they were, all, all the AABD recommendations were based on in the 1970s when they were deciding whether to store platelets uniformly cold or warm. And since most platelets are being used for hematological disease, they want the platelets to stay around a long time. And so that's why the recommendation was done. But obviously, from a hemorrhagic standpoint, you want the platelets to be used to stop bleeding. And so that was one of their disagreements. Well, if we give you cold platelets that might be activated, they'll be removed within a day. And we said, great, that means they're being functioning and, and stopping bleeding. And so that, that all that in, in vitro data that was produced actually left the FDA just to approve our cold platelets as a, as a product. Fortunately, hopefully we can get them to go out further than three days. Right now they're only approved in three days. Um, but, you know, at, in Pittsburgh, um, and I, I'm not sure I can't speak for the Mayo Clinic, but in Pittsburgh we have now whole blood stored up to 14 days. Um, and, you know, based on what your usual massive transfusion rate is, you know, our wastage is, is pretty low overall. And if there is any uh, whole blood that gets beyond 14 days, they're just salvaging the red blood cells. So they still, out of that product, they're able to uh, get red blood cells and then sell them. Uh, from that standpoint, they're not able to recover the SFP or platelets because it's, it's too, too far out. But... You know, that would be the only other limitation. If they provided the whole blood and you didn't use it, uh, there may be some, some wasted. So you have to be kind of smart about looking at what your data is, how often are you truly doing a massive transfusion, and, you know, in the summer, is it more than in the winter, and then kind of uh, keep a storage around that, that will be um, usable uh, during that two weeks. We initially started at 10 days, but pushed that out to 14 days once uh, in vitro data showed that the the coagulation functions were, were maintained uh, for at least 14 days pretty pretty well. The only other limitation, and I'm not sure it's a real limitation that, that Phil uh, didn't mention, is when do we start providing O-negative whole blood for, for women? Um, there was some concern. You know, obviously most uh, people, when they have uh, emergency blood in the, uh, in the emergency department, that blood is... If you're of childbearing age, if you give packed red blood cells, you're giving O negative. Right now, we only have um, O positive blood being provided at Pittsburgh. The Mayo Clinic, though, I think is providing both O positive and O negative to cover the female population, which is, in general, a smaller portion of the massive transfusions that we do for trauma. But, you know, then again, you, you may come to some limitations about how much O negative blood that you can provide 
And the donor pool uh, is a male donor pool uh, to try to reduce trolley. So plasma from, from females uh, have a higher incidence of trolley. So right now, the donor pool is only male uh, population uh, for the whole blood low tiger. Uh, and, and, and so that does limit it some. Do you envision, either of you envision a day where, you know, if, if the whole blood transfusion takes hold and becomes widely accepted, where people reach for whole blood for other, maybe more platelet-specific disorders like, you know, ITP or uh, maybe, you know, uremia or other cases where you have platelet dysfunction? If the, if the platelet function is really better in these cold-stored products, do you think whole blood is maybe potentially an answer in these situations as well? I would say it's an answer for um, any patient with hemorrhagic shock that's exsanguinating. A major GI bleed, postpartum uh, bleeding, uh, intraoperative uh, bleeding from you know, hepatic resection, et cetera. Uh, whenever you activate the MTP, um, I do envision in the next three to five years, whole blood will be, will be uh, being sent up in the coolers, not uh, one-to-one-to-one. Um, we have a long we have a long ways to go, uh, but the regulatory process is becoming simpler, and um, hopefully, with some additional trial data, we able we'll be able to show that whole blood out to 14 or 21 days is uh, better or equal to one to one to one, and the logistic uh, arguments will will win and lead it to be uh, more uh, available. The economics will follow if it helps improve uh, outcomes or is, again, um, you know, simpler to, to, to give, which I think could also help improve outcomes. For platelet-specific um, problems, no, I don't see it being used uh, for those platelet-specific issues because the benefit of whole blood is that you're getting red cells, plasma, and, and platelets. And those patients that have just a platelet-specific disorder – don't need red cells and plasma. So, so Alan, Alan first, and then Phil. Uh, so, uh, assuming let's assume the costs and logistics are equivalent between component and whole blood, and you absolutely have to take a position, <laughs> you know, with best evidence, is whole blood better for the patient than component therapy? Let's say in a one-to-one-to-one ratio. And, 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 if so, which, and if so, which patient population? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think, you know, again, from even if they are equivalent from cost and from outcomes, if you look from just the standpoint of uh, simplicity, giving whole blood is certainly a lot easier logistically and, and um, in, the, in the trauma bay, pre-hospital, just from a, a volume standpoint and the number of products you have to take. So, you know, I think... You know that I think we've shown, and I think we will continue to show that the risk is low, certainly of the hemolytic reaction, and that's really the only issue with using um, non-crossed or uncrossed matched uh, whole blood. But really, there there is no evidence to suggest that component therapy was ever superior to whole blood in the first place. And um, you know, talking about. The British being wary of giving whole blood, if you look all the way back to the First World War, the British were actually giving um, whole blood pretty routinely. And when the United States came into the war, you know, the U.S. was not using whole blood. Um, They were using just plasma. And after being in the war for about a year, they were like, 
uh, you know, why are the British doing so much better than we are? And, and they converted over the whole blood. So the whole basis for fractionation is unjustified in hemorrhagic shock. And I think the other thing, too, is, you know, obviously, anytime you set up any kind of protocol, there's always you know, deviations from it. So, you know, you put whole blood in the emergency refrigerator. Anybody that comes in with bleeding, sometimes you just grab whatever you can. So we had several patients that had GI bleeds, uh, in which the whole blood was given off protocol, uh, AAAs that were bleeding, giving off protocol. And I think it's really just a cultural thing as opposed to, um, you know, benefit uh, from component therapy, you know, because our medicine colleagues, particularly in the NICU, you know, if you have a GI bleed, they have no problem giving 10 units of whole, uh, 10 units of packed red blood cells thinking that they're treating their bleeding problem, which obviously is developing a coagulopathy. They never thought about, you know, giving the whole product. So, you know, really anybody that had hemorrhage, whether it's from trauma or other, it makes sense to give a product, uh, that is simpler to give and likely will have benefit. I, I think one of the issues that certainly will be the, the biggest issue will be whether or not you can prove whole blood is superior to one-to-one-to-one. -to -one -to -one. And I think that that study is unfortunately never, might never be done just based on the proper study, you know, costing $50 million and uh, enrolling patients. I think the amount of money and the patients you would have to roll to see in a difference may be huge, but I think that you're going to see, if you did do a multi-center trial, you're probably going to see a benefit by giving uh, a product uh, that may reduce the number of packed red blood cells and other products you get and may have some benefit on multi-organ dysfunction or infectious risk along the way. And so I'm hoping that, that we can show that in the future with a multi-center trial, looking at um, really those outcomes as opposed to mortality outcomes. Yeah, and I guess I'll answer the question, too. Um, patients that are exsanguinating, whatever the etiology, uh, I think would be better off with uh, whole blood compared to components. Again, getting back to the logistic um, advantages, uh, I think there may be some uh, hemostatic and, uh, advantages, uh, too, especially if the, cold, if the whole blood is cold and the one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one has warm platelets, I definitely think. There could, easily, there could be an outcome benefit there, uh, too. Um, and, uh, you know, an example of how simple this can be and how outcomes can change, uh, interestingly comes from Royal Caribbean Cruise Liners. Think about when everybody goes out on a cruise, uh, you are sometimes, you know, 12, uh, 16 hours uh, out of a port in the middle of nowhere in the ocean. The Royal Caribbean Cruise Liners has a whole blood transfusion program where if anybody who has typically it's GI bleed on a ship when they, where they are in the Gulf of Mexico, they call um, staff members and or uh, customers to donate whole blood on the ship and transfuse patients. They've done it over 80 times in the past uh, three to four years uh, and have saved likely, you know, 60, 70 lives that would have likely have been lost for massive bleeds out in the middle of the ocean. Where, well, well, yeah, but what's the margarita content of that blood? <laughs> well, that's the, well, that's the point. They likely have flavor inhibition too. Sure, they're at risk. Uh, but my point is, 
if the if my point is if the Royal Caribbean cruise lining industry can operationalize a cold whole blood oh, I'm sorry a warm whole a, a whole blood transfusion uh, program, uh, it's embarrassing that large trauma centers uh, cannot. Um, that's my point. Yes, of course there are extenuating circumstances on the cruise liner, but um, they've done it and they, they've published it. And they published it in our in the supplements that we published from the Thor uh, network. Well, that's a, that's a pretty good summary from both of you, uh, and maybe that, that's where we should end things, um, unless there are other uh, urgent urgent questions or burning questions that matter, Andrew, that you have, or anything else that either of you would like to say. Do you have any final questions, Andrew? No, it's been a great discussion, you guys. Eye-opening for me. I'm going to go straight home and straight to my blood bank medical director's office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, if we could just finish on, you know, one or two sentences from each of you on what do you think is the biggest advance you see coming in the near future related to whole blood? Yeah, that's a that's a difficult question. I, you know, I... I don't know if there's going to be any significant advances. There, there may be one. Um, the company that makes um, the um, luto-reduced filters that are platelet-sparing also have another product out there that basically does pathogen reduction. And so it's done through um, riboflavin that they actually then use ultraviolet light at. And they've had very good results of taking whole blood and doing pathogen reduction on those products, which would negate the testing uh, for uh, bacteria, viruses, and even parasites um, that we don't test for or viruses that we don't know about. And that data comes, uh, they they tested that uh, pretty significantly, I think, in Africa, which has a high uh, prevalence of HIV, and so their donor pool is certainly limited. And so I, I do think that uh, that company is working on a uh, a large processor for providing more units of whole blood uh, that way, which means that the blood that we get out there um, uh, would not be delayed. So, you know, currently FDA testing and everything takes up to 24, 36 hours. So the blood that we get is already a couple of days old. And so its uh, usability is obviously shortened when you get it later and then you have to get rid of it in 14 days or maybe longer, we'll see. So that may be the next technological advance uh, to really provide a product that is not only uh, efficient and efficacious, but also one that is very safe um, and rapidly provide, which would be a huge issue, certainly if you had um, to go through a blood collection in the military, maybe that's not completely feasible. If you're in a remote location, maybe it is. They make it very portable. But certainly from a civilian standpoint, you know, they're very reticent to do fresh whole blood because of the risk of concern for infection. But if you're able to turn around that blood very rapidly in a massive disaster, um, then then that might be useful. Um, currently, as far as I know, until certainly can confirm, there's not been a disaster yet in the United States to outdo, outstrip the blood blood supply, but there are instances in which that, that would be um, beneficial and, and Phil could expand on that. But that may be the next technological advance with whole blood. Uh, yeah, I agree with Al. The, the use of tapping reduction technology for whole blood would uh, make it safer. We'd have to make sure, though, that the efficacy 
wasn't reduced by um, using the PRT technology. Uh, that still needs to be uh, determined. Um, another potential advantage or advancement uh, could be alternative storage solutions that would make the red cells more uh, efficacious um, and likely maintain uh, platelet uh, function. So alternative storage solutions could help improve the efficacy uh, and safety uh, of the product. Um, getting to the concern for a mass casualty situation where the local inventory of blood is exhausted. Um, Al's right, um, it hasn't happened yet, but we've come very close. Actually, the Boston uh, bombings, uh, platelets needed to, be, uh, needed to be driven in from Connecticut and Rhode Island to uh, Boston Medical Center. They didn't need it, but they were so concerned that platelets were, were so low that they drove in platelets under, uh, with, under sirens, uh, cop cars. To, to get him in. So, and that was a small event. The Boston event was, what, 105 uh, casualties? Um, the terrorists are much more capable of, or, or are capable of having thousands of people uh, injured with, with, with significant uh, bleeding. Um, and the only way to resupply the blood supply is to use a, a emergency whole blood collection system the way we did uh, in theater. And there have been some, there have been uh, proposals sent to the FDA. I was on the, the panel with Homeland Security uh, that proposed it. Um, and it was rediscussed after the Boston bombing. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of uh, political issues and concerns about collecting whole blood uh, in that type of situation. But hopefully we can get a emergency plan passed that would allow for whole blood to be collected uh, in a mass cow because, um, unfortunately, I think that day is coming. As, as we've seen with the, the rapid the rise of terrorist events around the world, um, at one point they will have elated situations where hundreds if not thousands of people will be bleeding and we're going to run out of blood very quickly. Okay. Any other last thoughts from anyone? No, I think that was great. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, I'd like to thank uh, both of you for joining in today. Again, my guest has been Dr. Phil Spinella from Washington University in St. Louis, uh, the Division of Pediatrics and Critical Care, and Dr. Alan Murdoch, uh, Chief of Acute Care Surgery at Allegheny Hospital University Pittsburgh Medical Center. Thank you both for your time and uh, for the enlightening comments. I know you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.